All right, Salt City, I'm excited to be opening up Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting with verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 16, with you guys this morning. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles there, on your Bible app, that would be great. And what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see a way that God loves us that is counterintuitive to us. And so think about those moments in your life where you have felt most whole and most complete and most loved. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking back to actually kind of a surprising place. And that was a fl- and I remember being in this atmosphere and what characterized the atmosphere was both affirmation and a love for learning but there were also incredibly high standards. So for example, my professor, his name was Dave, when he graded a paper, a 12-page philosophy paper that I would write, he would write 10 pages of notes and critique. And he also would give verbal praise and affirmation to those in the class. And as I thought back on that situation, I looked at this passage, I thought, I think that the moments that we treasure the most in our lives are the moments where actually we feel challenged and pushed, and at the same time, we feel affirmed. And what we're going to see is that God is like this. And so we're actually going to see something a little bit strange, and that's that God's judgment is good news for us. His affirmation and critique throughout our lives and into eternity actually gives our life meaning and purpose, the purpose that we are looking for. So we're going to see four reasons from the text that God's judgment is good news. The first reason is the prevalence of wickedness. So we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting with verse 16 and going to verse 20 to start here. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. So Solomon has this very common human experience. He looks out at the world and he says, the world is filled with wickedness. Where there is supposed to be justice, there's wickedness. Where there's supposed to be right action and morality, there is wickedness. And he says, there's two things that God is doing. First of all, God will judge wickedness. He banks his hope, puts his trust in that reality. 
And then he also says that what wickedness is supposed to do in the world is it's supposed to be a mirror to our own hearts so that we see that we are beasts. So here's what he's doing here. He's giving us a biblical lens through which to view injustice and wickedness, which is really important for us because there are competing views of injustice and wickedness. So what I actually want to do is take a moment here and I want to tackle an instance of injustice and wickedness that we've seen in our culture that surely you've read about. And that's the case of Ahmad Arbery. So Ahmad Arbery was a young man who was on a run in Georgia, who was African-American. And two men um, waited for him in a pickup truck and they shot him, gunned him down in the street. What is true of the situation is that he had no weapon, he was doing nothing wrong, and he committed no crime. And so if you've seen any news reports about what happened, you're going to hear sort of the Republican perspective, you're going to hear the Democratic perspective, you're going to hear words like white supremacy, you're going to hear words like racism, and you're going to try to wade through all of these different things and try to come up with a perspective that makes sense out of what happens. Here's my contention to you, that the Bible is sufficient to make sense out of what happened and to categorize what happened as injustice and as wrong in light of what this scripture says. So what we believe is that God will bring justice and what is right to this situation. And here's the way that God judges what is right and what is wrong in the world by his law. So the reason that we believe that this was wrong is because this man, Ahmad Arbery, who was on a run, was an image bearer of our holy God. God created him, knit him together in his mother's womb to reflect his image. He was fearfully and wonderfully made. Also, these two men who gunned him down in the street are image bearers of a holy God, were knit together by God in their mother's womb, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so what we believe is that this was an instance of injustice because these two men broke God's law. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder an image bearer of, the whole, of a holy God. And even if Ahmad Arbery had done something wrong, which it doesn't seem like he did do anything wrong, didn't commit any kind of crime, even if he had, According to Romans chapter 13, it is the governing authority's job to bring justice to the situation on earth, not our job to sort of go out and take justice, so to speak, into our own hands. So the reason that this is wrong, the reason that it should not resonate with us specifically as believers in Jesus is because these men broke God's law. But what we don't want to do 
is we don't want to stop there. We do want to cry out to God for justice. We want to ask God that he would bring what is right to the situation through the governing authorities, but also into eternity. But we don't stop there just by making a judgment about the situation or even in crying out for justice. Solomon says we need to go further. We need to see that part of God's purpose in allowing injustice to continue on the earth for a time is to show us that we are but beasts. And then he reminds us of Genesis 3. We're made from the dust, to dust we shall return. Why is that the case? Because of our sin. And so what we need to remember, even when we see a heinous crime like this, is we need to remember that we are like the men who murdered Ahmad Arbery. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus said, if you even look, or if you even get angry with somebody in your heart, you've committed murder. Which means before our holy, if we've been what we call frustrated with our spouse or our roommate or our neighbor, and we have gotten angry with them, what that is in God's eyes is murder. Because God is pure. He is other. He is holy. So what we're supposed to see as Christians in injustice is we're supposed to see a mirror back to ourself. So what we have is an opportunity to embrace God's justice, to cry out for justice, but also in that to bow down to his mercy and to be thankful that God is a God of justice, but he's not just a God of justice. He is also the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, not to condemn murderers like us and these men who killed Ahmaud Arbery, not to condemn them, but in order that they might be saved, that we might be saved through him. So we cry out for justice, but our hearts are melted by the mercy of God. And so we are thankful that this is the type of justice that God brings to the earth. That yes, he punishes the wicked and the unrighteous, but also that he is a God of mercy. So we're thankful for the judgment of God, and we believe that it is part of the good news. A second reason that we're thankful for the judgment of God and believe that it is part of the good news is the toil of work. So chapter four, verses four through eight say this. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness with two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy 
business. Okay, so here's what Solomon is saying. The question that gives meaning to your work is, for whom am I toiling? And what he says is that for the most part, people are toiling for themselves. And so he gives two different types of toiling or working hard for yourself. One of them is that the primary motivation for your work is envy of your neighbor. So what we call this is the American dream or keeping up with the Joneses. And so we are motivated often by trying to get a bigger house or trying to get a better car or trying to go on more fun vacations so that our neighbors look at our Instagram account and they say, I wish I had their life. That line of thinking, it turns out, is not something new to the 21st century and was not perpetuated by social media, but is something that is as old as dirt. Solomon looked out into his world and he saw that he and others around him were motivated by envy of their neighbors. And he also says there's sort of a counter response to this. And the counter response to this is say, I see that everybody in the world is motivated by envy of their neighbors. And I don't want any part of trying to keep up with the Joneses. So I am going to live in my parents' basement and I'm going to mooch off them and I'm going to get an Xbox Live subscription and I'm going to order pizza using my parents' money and I am just going to be lazy. I'm not going to try to keep up with the Joneses. I am going to sit in my parents' basement in my sweatpants. And that response, it turns out, is not something new either, but is also old as dirt. And what Solomon says is in so doing, what, it, what it's like doing is taking your arm like it's a drumstick of chicken and eating your own flesh. It erodes your soul and it ruins your life. And so either response to work really hard for yourself or to try to give yourself comfort are both examples that Solomon gives of living for yourself. I think the primary illustration of this in the world is a relationship between many fathers and sons. So we see fathers who are out, they've got great jobs, they have nice suits, they drive nice cars, they're never home, they don't play catch with their sons in the yard because they're always so busy trying to be successful. And as a result, their sons resent them. And they say, I don't want to be like my dad because I see that he is motivated by envy. And so they become lazy and self-indulgent and indifferent in many different ways. And what Solomon says is the answer is God's judgment. The answer is that we don't live any longer to please ourselves instead of living for self 
We live to please God. We live our lives before the face of God. And so what actually gives meaning to our work, it turns out, is God's judgment. When I am no longer living for myself, but I am living for my gracious, compassionate, yet exacting God, when I'm living for his pleasure, I find that my heart is full, even though often I am working hard and busy. And the way that Solomon illustrates this, he says, working for yourself is like working with two hands. You are working so hard, but there is anxiety inside of your heart. But do you see the illustration he gives here in verse 6? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Here's what happens when you live before the face of God. You have one hand on the plow and you have one hand holding on to the hand of your father who is in heaven. That's what God designed your life to be like. And so instead of living for yourself, you're living for God. So there's this balance in your life between hard work and relational closeness to God. God made you in your work, even in your hardest work, to be in communion with him, in relationship with him, living to please him. Okay, third, third reason that God's judgment is part of the good news is the usefulness of friendship. Okay, chapter four, verses nine through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So my guess is, is that if you're familiar with this passage, that the reason that you're familiar with the passage is that you heard it taught at a wedding. And my guess is that you didn't hear it taught at a wedding in the same way that I am going to teach it now. Because I think sometimes it's used at a wedding in the opposite way than it's used here. It's used to say that marriage could be an all-satisfying, fulfilling relationship. The point that Solomon's making here is that friendship is useful in some ways, but the implication is that it's not all satisfying and doesn't give ultimate meaning to your life. So what he actually says is that friends can help you with landscaping. They could help you move. They could help you with some ordinary work around your house. They could keep you warm. If you were cold, you could share a sleeping bag with one of your buddies. Or they could help you win a fight. Okay? So friends are very useful to have in the world that we live in. They are practically very helpful. But they can't give ultimate meaning and significance to your life. In other words, a friend can never challenge you enough or 
affirm you enough. Only God can be a friend in the truest and most profound sense. You might have heard me say this before, but I remember right after finding out that my son Jude had a congenital heart defect, I called my friend Jeff Dodge, who's a and to preach for me at Salt City. And he preached on Psalm 121. And he got off the stage and we were chatting for a little bit after the service. And he looked me in the eyes and it was that look of earnestness. And he said, Drew, remember that in this trial that you're going through and about to walk through, remember that no one else can help you. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying Ecclesiastes chapter four. Friends are gonna bring you casserole. Friends are gonna be a shoulder to cry on. Friends are gonna help you with your yard work. Friends are gonna give you a hug. Friends are gonna say encouraging words. But a friend can never deeply affirm you and challenge you in the way that your heart needs. Only God can be that kind of friend. Because what you really need with the categories of Ecclesiastes is you need God's judgment on your life. And here's what I mean. You need somebody who knows you down to the very depths of your soul, who knows every corner of your heart, every thought and intention of your heart. You need that person to tell you that you're okay. You need that person to affirm you. You need that person to tell you that your future's bright. Because what's true is even your best friend doesn't know everything about you. Even your best friend can't make that kind of critique about your life. And even your best friend can't speak that type of life into your soul. Only God, the judge of all the earth, can do that. So friends are useful, but they're not all satisfying. They can't give ultimate meaning to your life. And the fourth thing, the last thing that we're going to see as a reason that God's judgment is good news is the illusion of acclaim. We're looking at chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So I think Solomon's doing here is he's giving a hypothetical scenario. So he's imagining a rags to riches story. Imagine that there was this prisoner who was in the dungeon and he rose from the dungeon and he worked and he scrapped. I mean, you can imagine the work that would go in for somebody who was in prison, presumably because they committed a crime and for that person to become the king. And what happens to this young man as he becomes an old man and he gets everything that he wants, he has so many followers. He has so many riches. 
He has so much power and he has so much acclaim. People literally bow at his feet. But then he gets older. People get used to his leadership. Even though he's a great leader, people get used to his leadership. They forget the great things that he's done in the past. They forget his rags to riches story. And someone else begins to overshadow him. And what happens is he loses the meaning of his life. Because the fame that he thought would satisfy his soul is slipping through his fingers. He's saying fame or acclaim is an illusion. It will never fill your heart with the adoration that you're longing for because your fans will have a very superficial understanding of who you are. They'll only know you from a distance. And because they only know you for, from a distance, you will never actually get what you're looking for from having a lot of followers and fans. You'll just want more and more and more and more. And it will never satisfy you. I was reminded of this when I was talking to a friend this week on FaceTime. And I was talking to this friend, and then his wife also got on the call. They were some friends of mine from Iowa City. When I was the salt company director there of a college ministry, about 400 students. And my friend Carrie gets on the call, and she says to me, I was doing some leadership interviews and I was talking about you to one of the leaders. Keep in mind, this was only three years ago. And this girl had no idea who you were. And at first, I'm kind of like, oh, wow. Kind of feels like I wasted my time in Iowa City or I was wasting my life. But then I just kind of chuckled to myself and I thought, isn't that great? Isn't, isn't this great? Because of who I am in Jesus because of his judgment towards my life, I don't need to be famous. I don't need everybody to know who I am or what I did or the blood, sweat, and tears that I put into my ministry in Iowa City. I don't need any credit because I'm not living for the praise of people because the praise of people, it turns out, is empty. It's hollow. It never satisfies our soul. And so it's actually hilariously good news. We're all completely dispensable. No one needs us. We don't have to be amazing. We can just be human. And God can look on us with this smile on our lives. Okay, so just as a recap, this is what we need. We need a judgment that does away with our wickedness, but doesn't destroy us. We need a judgment that rewards our work as something that God is pleased with. We need a judgment that affirms us until our hearts are full 
but that actually knows us down to the core of our being. And, a, and we need a judgment that won't end, but outlast this life by a bazillion years. The only judgment that can give you that is the judgment of God himself. And, and you might be like, wait, but I'm kind of scared of that judgment. That judgment has always seemed like really bad news to me. But let me give you a snapshot of what that judgment looks like for those of us who will humbly recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace. There's this story in the Gospels in John chapter 4. The title in your Bible is, is probably something like the woman at the well. And this woman gets in this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus ends up telling her about her secret thoughts. He tells her, you've been chasing after affirmation from men your whole life. And he says, but that water has never satisfied your soul. I can give you a water that will give you satisfaction down to the depths of your being. And then he tells this woman her life story. He recounts it for her step by step. All of her sin, all of her actions, all the secret thoughts of her heart. And he affirms her. He tells her that he's the Messiah, that he came to save her, that he loves her. And here's her response. John chapter 4, verses 28 from 29. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And and you just imagine, she's leaping for joy. She's jumping and she's excited. And her testimony is, he told me everything that I ever did. This is what it's going to feel like to stand before the judgment of God. This is what it feels like to stand before the judgment of God when you can admit that you're a sinner and that you need a savior whose name is Jesus. Here's what it's going to feel like. Jesus is going to tell you everything that you've ever done and you are simultaneously going to feel challenged and critiqued down to the depths of your being. You're going to feel overwhelmed. And you are going to feel affirmed like you never have before. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Run away from trying to live for the opinion and judgment of the world. And run to the judgment of God. And allow him to say to you this morning and every day going forward, yes, You are guilty and I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting us this morning in your word. Thank you for speaking through this strange and sometimes confusing book called Ecclesiastes. Thank you for showing us that your judgment for a believer in Jesus is good news because you are a God of exacting standards and a God of grace. Would we humbly bow before you this week, this morning, and receive your love for sinful people? In Jesus' name, amen.